History is about civilizations that have come and gone. It's about the development of humankind and history is about the human stories worth telling. This is History for the Curious with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Good morning. I am Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch speaking to you here live from the JLE in London. And this is History for the Curious, um, which is our hour broadcast of various topics in Jewish history. Today, we will be covering the second part of Holocaust denial and um, History for the Curious is part of a larger weekly podcast um, which is available on all streaming media. Now last week uh, we started the topic of Holocaust denial and we discussed how there are actually some questions which might leave us feeling uncomfortable. Although it is assumed and we will see this week why it is more than assumed, but actually correct to understand that there is enough evidence um, for Holocaust, um, the, the Holocaust to be proven beyond any question. And that is why, in fact, in the Deborah Lipstadt trial with David Irving, the judges ruled unanimously in favor of Deborah Lipstadt, uh, but um, it's ne necessary to understand that there are some questions which are brought up, which need a little bit of sophistication in order to answer. Um, as I say, we have got enough evidence. The truth is quite clearly, overwhelmingly on our side. There is no question about the events of World War II. It is possibly the most written about um, narrative in all of world history. But uh, then there are potentially some questions and the methodology of Holocaust the deniers is to find a small point a little issue and extrapolate and expand and exaggerate from there to such a degree that they build an entire case um, which is a house of cards. Um, we need to be able to pinpoint the, the area that they have extrapolated. We need to be aware of how the expansion of the question is simply invalid in terms of historical data and in terms of um, the, the uh, way that history is created and collected, but being aware of the questions that exist. So, uh, for instance, um, when they ask for uh, written evidence of certain parts of the Holocaust, most infamously, what is called the Führerbefehl, um, which is a, an order from Hitler, which clearly uh, 
orders the destruction of the Jewish people in Europe in World War II. Truth is, that cannot be found anywhere. Um, and that obviously creates an issue in its own right, which we will address after the ad break. This is History for the Curious with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. We are back dealing with Holocaust denial. Now, um, what's interesting is that David Irving chose to sue Deborah Lipstadt for libel in the courts of the UK rather than of the USA, even though she obviously writes and teaches in America. But that is because what you have to prove in a libel case in the two countries is very different. In the UK, you, the onus of proof is on the defendant. So Deborah Lipstadt had a harder time of things. Nevertheless, you will be happy to know that she won hands down and it was a unanimous verdict of all the High Court judges. What does need to be known is that she did not call any Holocaust survivors to the stand during the trial, which uh, strikes as somewhat bizarre, very bizarre, perhaps. Surely um, they were on hand. Uh, they are relating first-hand testimony, and therefore they should be the most obvious candidates. But the truth is that they are not trained to be dispassionate. Uh, they are not professional witnesses in the way you would call a doctor in a case of malpractice uh, to give their opinion. We are talking about here uh, people who suffered unbelievable tragedies and therefore in details it's possible that part of their testimony will be incorrect. While the greater whole is still true, in a court of law, it's not worth introducing even a 5% of doubt, um, even if the other 95% holds out on its own, for the simple reason that creating doubt in the minds of a jury um, will weaken a case, even if it is only in, um, es in, in essence, but not in substance. And therefore, she took the decision, which was quite unpopular in certain circles, but ultimately she was vindicated, that the people who need to be called to the stand are people who can discuss this from a professional point of view, even if they weren't present. And what she said at the time was that the person who is initiating this libel was also not there at the time and is also not a first-hand witness. So one should fight fire with fire, which is um, what she went ahead and did very successfully. What is also very important to be aware is that Holocaust denial does not simply come about from people who may have doubts. It has an agenda to it. It is very much centered in what they are trying to achieve, often extremely anti-Semitic causes, more of which uh, you will hear 
over the next 35 minutes. This is History for the Curious with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. We are still in the middle of our five-part Holocaust series. So last week was part one of Holocaust Denial, and this week will be a continuation of that. You left us with a bit of a mountain to climb. You told us that deniers, the Holocaust deniers, they use incorrect data and that there is no record of Hitler ordering the murder of Jews anywhere. So we're going to need a bit of clarification from you for this episode. Right. Just to clarify, when you say deniers use some of the incorrect data, data that we provided them with, which was incorrect, rather than them using data which is untrue, which they also do. Right. Essentially, the answer to everything I said last week is one word, evidence. In other words, I said that the Holocaust is possibly the most documented event in history. By documented, I don't just mean books. Modern history is not based on books alone. In fact, no one strand of evidence is ever responsible for historians deciding what happened. They need converging lines of evidence. They put it all together and they build a picture. So they're going to look for documents, letters, blueprints, plans. They need to find eyewitnesses, not just survivors, bystanders, instigators. They're going to look at the physical evidence that was still in situ post-war. Buildings, bone fragments, photos. They're going to check railway records of transports. They're going to go through uh, what was said in post-war trials, the famous ones at Nuremberg and the trials of individuals, which means if, for instance, a dozen people come forward and they testify that a particular event happened, but there's no corroborating evidence, there are no orders found, there's no location for the crime, there's no background, their testimony is going to be dismissed. But if we find six converging lines of evidence that, for instance, prove that Auschwitz was a concentration camp where the Jews were murdered, then the fact that a particular survivor can't remember if they were sent to the left or, th or to the right is irrelevant to building the picture of what Auschwitz was. And presumably deniers will never provide converging lines of evidence. Never. Because they're trying to prove a lie, and it's impossible. So the best they can do is look for a question here, detail there, but no composite picture. They can't. And that's why under pressure in court, their ideas and theories will always be exposed. Right. But you still don't have any direct order from Hitler. How do you ha okay. deal with that? Let's deal with what is called the Führerbefehl. Where is the order that Hitler gave? Answer? I don't need it. It wouldn't add to the picture or evidence at all. Let me build the case for you. There are a number of steps. We have to prove a few things before we get to the murder of six million Jews. First, we have to prove that Hitler hated the Jews. I don't mean, you know, he thought that they smell or have long noses or, or were thieves. I mean that in public office, after he became the leader of the country, not just while trying to get elected, he made it clear that all Jews in Europe should be wiped out. At what stage did he write his book, Mein Kampf? Mein Kampf in the 20s. Oh, that was long so, before. Long before. So statements like, only when the rivers of Europe run red with the blood of the Jews will Germany rise from the ashes, or this parasite on the nations, or what he said in 39, if the international Jewish financiers succeed in plunging nations once more into a world war, 
then the result will be the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe. And he keeps this up until the bitter end. His very last message to the German people just before he committed suicide in 45 was, above all, I obliged the national leadership and its followers to subject the poisoner of all nations, international jury, to merciless resistance. Well, and that's hatred, Bonian theory, no? Right. So that was step one. Then we need to establish that this spoken and written hatred was put into practice. Was there actual crime carried out against the Jews as an entity by the German country as a whole? So, Jews are ejected from all schools and universities. Bank accounts are frozen. They're stripped of citizenship, no longer protected by the law of the land, forbidden to sit on park benches. So, yes. Then... Does this hatred turn to actual violence? The answer is Kristallnacht. 30,000 Jews arrested across the country in one night. So it's a government-sponsored pogrom, not like the pogroms in Russia. It's the first time in history. 1,200 shuls destroyed across two countries, virtually every shul in Germany and Austria, millions of pounds of damage. And bear in mind that all of this isn't hearsay. The international press was still in Germany when these things happened. Why didn't they do anything? It was such a huge Why story. didn't they? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, but for another time, but it's a very good question. Okay, so having now established that he hated the Jews, he initiated segregation, followed by countrywide violence, including murder against the Jews, we now move to the war itself, where we have proof from the Nazis themselves of what they did. I'll, I'll share a few of these. In 1946, in Berlin, they find 193 signed reports from high-ranking SS members in Eastern Europe detailing over one million Jewish murders. These documents are in fact so revealing that 22 SS officers named in the documents are subsequently put on trial in Nuremberg. This is not the, the main one there. And 14 of them were sentenced to death. You have the Wannsee Protocols, documents drawn up in Berlin, 20th January 1942, where Heydrich Eichmann and 13 other high-ranking officials identify in writing the 11 million Jews of Europe by country, including England. It's a policy document to annihilate the Jews of Europe, and you can visit Wannsee nowadays, you can see them. Then there is the Himmler speech in Posen in October 43, which is available on the internet in German. Himmler is speaking. He stops the tape recorder at one point to make sure it's working. And then knowing he is being recorded, he speaks for three hours and he says, and I quote, we can now openly talk about this amongst ourselves and yet never discuss this publicly. I am referring to the extermination of the Jewish people. Something that's easily said, the Jewish people will be exterminated, says every party member. This is very obvious. It's in our program, elimination of the Jews, extermination. Most of you here know what it means when a hundred corpses lie next to each other, or when a thousand are lined up, right, talking about the mass graves. To have endured this, and at the same time to have remained a decent person, whatever, has made us tough. And he goes on to say it's a glorious page of our history. 
And in June 41, Himmler told Rudolf Hess, the commander of Auschwitz, that Hitler had ordered the Endlossung, the final solution, and that Hess would play a major role at Auschwitz. Eichmann will come and see you, and he says, the Jews are the eternal enemies of the German people and must be exterminated. All Jews we can now reach are to be exterminated without exception. I think this is what one would call real evidence. I have to tell you that these quotes are so damning that when David Irving, the Holocaust denier, was confronted with them, he admitted it. He said, I agree. Himmler said that. Himmler said, we're wiping out the Jews, we're murdering them. But Himmler is admitting what I said happened to the 600,000. But nowhere does Himmler say we are killing millions. So Irving agrees that Himmler admitted to murdering the Jews and to wanting to murder them. But since Himmler didn't say how many, it was probably 600,000, not 6 million. Why? Because. And that's Irving's best defense. I mean, it's, it's too ridiculous to deserve comment. And then going on to more evidence, Nuremberg's main trial, many of them agreed it had happened and that they knew, but they were just following orders. And you have German documentary evidence from the official diary of General Hans Frank, which conclusively proves that Nazi policy to Polish Jews was extermination and leaving only a minority alive temporarily as slave labor. And on the 16th of December 1941, he said to his senior officials, and I quote, I must ask you to rid yourself of all feelings of pity. We must annihilate the Jews wherever we find them and whenever it is possible. Now, he is in charge of central Poland, including the half a million Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto. And all of that, by the way, is just a sample. And that's from Germany. There is articles in the free world based often on uh, Polish resistance movements who forwarded information. The Daily Telegraph, as early as June 1942, had on its front page, Germans murder 700,000 Jews, and it mentions gas chambers. Now, this is June 42. That's basically before Auschwitz, before Treblinka. So this is your Führerbefehl. Meaning, if six million Jews were murdered and whole governments were employed, or government departments at least, were employed to do this, the transport ministry, justice ministry, interior ministry, with thousands of employees, it needed thousands of pages of paperwork, and the construction of these camps, of crematoria, it would have been impossible, not just without Hitler's knowledge, but without his full approval. He wasn't just the leader of the country, he was the dictator, he had absolute power. So yes, it came from him. Right, so what we mentioned last week, that he possibly never visited the camp or shot a Jew with his gun, it makes it completely irrelevant. That is not what we need to prove. We need converging lines of evidence to prove his murderous hatred, both in theory and practice, and also to prove that millions of Jews were killed during those years. And at that point, two and two always equals four. And deniers would need to demolish all that evidence to prove their case. And that's why not one Holocaust denial case in court ever won. You can't get converging evidence if you are a liar. Now, for our listeners, it might be necessary to hear again what I've just said, but it's important to understand that in law and in history, all of the above constitutes clear evidence. And that's why the ruling of the judges in the UK High Court found that Irving had 
misquoted sources, falsified statistics, bent historical evidence so that it conformed to his um, neo-fascist political agenda and ideological beliefs. Let's turn to one of the other things that we left hanging last week, the question of gas chambers. Once again, firstly, there's a euthanasia T4 program, which Germany used against those that it said were invalids or mentally unfit, or including non-Jews, basically before the war started. And it's documented because they had to have doctors sign the death warrants, meaning the Germans were carrying out murder by gassing, sanctioned by the state. You cannot argue to the contrary. So conceptually, gassing individuals is legalized in Germany. That's stage one. And then there are mass orders for Zyklon B. There are diaries of the Zonderkommando, the SS guards, often found after the war, describing daily burning of the bodies of those who'd been gassed, traces on the walls, maps, blueprints. You've made a pretty strong case. What are the claims of the deniers with, with the gas chambers? So they'll say, for instance, the bricks nowadays don't contain any traces of Zyklon B, to which the answer is yes, because they've been exposed to the open the past 50 years. Or they'll say Zyklon B would have caused an explosion in the gas chambers. That's true, but it would take 56,000 parts per million to do so, and you only need 300 parts per million to murder, which is one twentieth of that amount. Then infamously, they say that Auschwitz one gas chamber is too small and it's got no holes for the gas. Irving came up with the headline, no holes, no Holocaust. But that's because Auschwitz one was converted in 1944 into an air raid shelter. As soon as they had the larger and more advanced gas chambers in, in Birkenau, in Auschwitz-Birkenau, and in Birkenau, the aerial photography clearly shows four holes for the gas chambers, the crematoria. What about Treblinka, which has absolutely no remains? Same story. You need to establish overall Nazi policy in Poland from ghettos to deportation, for which there is a paper trail testimony. Then we move to 41, when there is evidence for mass murder in Eastern Europe, meaning that Nazi policy after the invasion of Russia in June 41 turns to active annihilation as a policy. So now we move to July 42 and the establishment of Treblinka and there are, well, there are orders in Warsaw for the gathering of the Jews to the Umschlagplatz every day. The Polish resistance movement kept the records of trains running from Warsaw to Treblinka. How many trains, how many wagons per train? Interestingly, they use lack of evidence. Hundreds of thousands were transported to Treblinka and no food ever. Um, there were farmers who were farming their land within 200 meters of Treblinka who saw and heard. Uh, you can see them interviewed in the 1970s by Claude Landsman. He has a nine hour long film called Shoah. Right, one of the first on, on the topic. And of course, there were 50 survivors and there are written records of people who didn't survive. You also have the Stroop report, which was used in the Nuremberg trials uh, when he telegrammed Berlin to say that basically the half a million Jews in Warsaw have been dealt with. 
And there is physical evidence of bones and ash, not of the numbers that we're talking, but you can see it was an execution site even nowadays. Converging lines of proof. Right. And therefore, in 1980, when Holocaust deniers issued a $50,000 reward in the press to anyone who could prove that people had been killed in gas chambers, knowing as they did that no one had gone in was gassed and saw others die and came out, they were forced in court to pay out not just the 50000 but an extra $40,000 in emotional trauma based on multiple strands of evidence. I don't need to hear from somebody who was gassed. I need proof it was built, proof Zyklompi was delivered, proof Jews were brought there in enormous numbers, eyewitnesses about burning of the bodies, need to find plans or testimony from engineers. And at that stage, the evidence is complete. Okay, but in our audience, not many people have that level of knowledge that you just described. So what? Just the very fact that they now know that evidence exists is important and that they understand how history is constructed. So you don't get worried or thrown off by an insignificant question. On a practical level, we will still get to the first line of response. You mentioned that mistakes were made about the numbers until recently. So I just want to point, uh, I just want to go on that until recently. How has new evidence came to light? How did it come to light recently? Okay, so the death camps were closed by the end of 1943. So you have an 18-month gap before the war ends. And so there's less evidence around after that amount of time, as well as the Nazis created the 1005 Commando, where Jews had to dig up and burn all of the bodies. So the available evidence is diminished. But 30 years ago, a very big change takes, a change takes place internationally, the internet. Since the Holocaust is such a vast area, I can now have, you know, six documents open simultaneously and, and photos and maps, which I could never do before. But it's not just that. It also means I can access not, not just my library, but through digitization anywhere in the world. And that crucially includes Behind the Iron Curtain by 1991, which until then was off limits. And there's a lot of information and evidence in the East. And now I can even translate these documents online from any language. So that makes an enormous difference to the um, research being rigorous and, and cross-examined. And you have, I don't know, researchers like Father Patrick Dubois, who's uncovered uh, over a thousand unknown mass graves, uh, sending in teams into Eastern Europe, methodically going from town to town to look for eyewitnesses. And I guess the more deniers that come out, the more reason there is for people to go out there and prove things. Yes, although we are now at a stage where we can just refer them to, to historical evidence to, to, to the stuff that yes, we have I think, here. I think you've made a very solid defense. So in which case, I guess there's an obvious question. Why are people denying it? Is this just raw anti-Semitism? Um, in a way, the answer to that is yes, but there are various groups involved. Perhaps by way of introduction, we'll talk about the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a, a known proven forgery written by the Russian secret police in the last part of the 19th century to target 
the Jews. In other words, there's an agenda from the Tsar and his police. That's the end of the 19th century. Why have the protocols been reprinted in almost every known language in the late 20th century? For whom? Who needs them? Why do they continue to be a bestseller in the 21st century, even in countries that have no Jews? And the answer is because Jews are news. Their frequency in the news is totally disproportionate to their numbers, and their influence is far out of uh, the bounds of what one would expect it to be. I mean, most people assume as a result that there must be 50 million Jews in America, and they assume that Israel must be a very big place, very big country, because every major news crew in the world has a team out there. Jews themselves don't appreciate often how newsworthy we are. Um, So others look at the Jewish influence in the world and they, they, they really do believe an idea within the protocols that somehow we must have a say in it, how it's run. Look how many Jews are involved in politics, finance in the Western world. And therefore they assume or they put it out there that Maybe they invented this Holocaust fiction for sympathy. In other words, if Jews allegedly suffered so much in the war, then the rest of the world will look the other way if Jews commit crimes. And much more so when it comes to getting a country of their own. Well, because of what they went through during the war, you know, Nebuch. So it's a Jewish ploy and, you know, we non-Jews, we all fell for it which is why Holocaust denial is now highly touted by Arab countries in the Middle East, because if the Jews did not suffer in the Holocaust, at least not disproportionately, if they were not displaced and they made their own way to the Middle East, then they've got no political rights to the land. So that's one major group. Another group come about academically because you become famous. A lot of these deniers achieve a platform that they would never have done as sort of a lowly academic. They've taken on a, you know, a cause celebre. A third group, people have a need for enemies. And the word Jew is a lightning rod, even in the 21st century, in particular, obviously, neo-Nazi groups and, and the like. But finally, and very importantly, countries in the East can avoid restitution. In other words, giving back properties and paying up for their own collaboration with the Nazis. So in the Baltic states, they've all signed up to the Red Brown Day, which puts together, it lumps together all the suffering under the Nazis and under the communists. We all suffered. And that way they don't have to confront their own past, which is basically Holocaust minimization. It was difficult for all of us. And the State Museum in Vilna is a particularly odious example of this, where Jews are airbrushed from the narrative of suffering, and local Lithuanians are airbrushed from having committed any murder of Jews. So, yes, they have agendas, and therefore don't debate them. They see success just by getting exposure. And you're not going to put the lie to rest. You can talk to individuals who know nothing, but not to these, you know, people wow okay that's a, that's a lot of information to process yes um sorry to put you on the spot here but i'm gonna ask you to sum up holocaust now as we as we reach the end to episode two so what it is i think you've you've said a lot in detail how it came about and why if you could just sum it up for us 
Okay, in brief, in maybe four or five points. First of all, it exists, especially on the internet, but denial is a farce. On a superficial level, questions can be asked and doubts can be created, but never at a deeper sustained level. That's point one. Point two, it is perpetrated deliberately by haters for a variety of reasons, none of which are about uncovering the truth, and they you know, live off publicity, and it is very upsetting, especially to survivors. Point three is it's carried out by highlighting um, catchy one-liners, often about data made in error, and using anything that feeds into their narrative, picking on details. Point four, all they need is to be vaguely plausible. If 20% of an audience believes them, that's victory. And since, as we mentioned last week, the alternative is in some ways unthinkable to believe that Germany, a first world country, did this and got 11 other countries to join in, it's difficult. And therefore, don't debate them except if the audience has real time, like a court of law. Okay, don't debate them, but a first line of defense response. Okay. So firstly, as we've said now twice, the Holocaust is the most recorded event in modern history, probably. And historians in every nation in Europe and in the Western world agree to it. And many countries make the denial of it a a criminal act. It's first off. Secondly, you have to look at who's making these claims. People with an agenda who distort, who use one fact to build a case, who, who have no qualifications and pretend they do and have no evidence to the contrary, which is why they've lost every trial. And in each case, the verdict was you distorted and manipulated sources. But having said that, when we're talking to people, the human dimension is critical. So get people to watch, you know, survivor testimony at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, USHMM website, to watch the six-part series by the BBC based on the book of Lawrence Reist called Auschwitz, or read his book, it's a very easy read, or the book Holocaust by Bullets by the priest, Father Patrick Desbois. Or I guess just listen to Himmler's speech that you mentioned in 1943. Yes, or the transcript of it in English, yeah. Now, I have to mention that innocuous statements can lead to Holocaust minimization. Last week, the BBC wrote, six million Polish people died during the war, of whom three million were Jews. No. Three million Polish people died. Three million Jews were murdered on Polish soil, having been born in Poland, with no connection to the other three million. They were killed for the same reason as 500,000 in Hungary, or 200,000 in Lithuania, or 58,000 from Greece. And therefore, it was men, women, and children who were murdered. And it simply skews the statistics that Poland suffered by losing 20% of its citizens. It didn't. It lost 10% of its citizens, and the Jews lost 90% of its citizens living in Poland. And not one single one of the Jews was killed because they were Polish. No one asked to see their passports or checked to see if they spoke Polish. And the places that the Jews were murdered in, like the death camps, didn't exist for the three million Polish people. It was built for the Jews. So it's a travesty 
to mention both sets of three million in the same breath under the same heading. It's actually nauseating. Uh, Using the statistics the way the BBC and so many others do minimizes what happened to us. It, It desecrates the memory of those people who were murdered after they've died, just so that, you know, nations in Europe can sleep more comfortably at night, most of whom didn't do anywhere near enough to prevent it happening as it was happening. And I particularly include America in that with plenty of evidence, unfortunately, for that too. It's a politically correct form of Holocaust minimization. Um, Okay, one last point, one important point before we sign off. Why did I choose to talk about this during the three weeks? Meaning, Holocaust stories are emotive. They allow us to feel the churban, destruction. But denial, it's all sort of theory. Except it isn't. There isn't a major country in the Western world that doesn't have survivors. Yet denial persists in all of these countries. Why? So, at a deeper level, there's a posuk in Malachim. Vahoyo Yisrael l'moshol u'l'shnina b'chol ha'amim. The Jews will be scorned. They, they will be a byword for disgust amongst the nations of the world. When it comes to accusing Jews, it doesn't need to be true to stick. Think about the blood libels in the Middle Ages, about Israel internationally. And as we say in Echa, Sri Umois Tsimeni Bekerev Ho'amim. We are refuse. What it means to be in exile in Golus, we can see from the assembly of all the nations in the world, the United Nations, where Israel is a pariah state to such a degree that it is pathetically hypocritical. In other words, it's so beyond anything that's justifiable that it's no longer just hypocrisy, it's open contempt. What they're saying is, we don't give a damn. You don't even need to catch them out, it's blatant. Jews don't count. There's no accountability about Israel. The Holocaust is exactly like that. I, I don't need to give further examples of why both of these are ludicrous. We are a piece of garbage. That's how we are looked at. Okay, yes, I will reiterate, this does not mean that every non-Jew in the world is out to get us. But it does mean that there is a status accorded to the Jews of the world, which is so irredeemable that even if millions of us are butchered, There will be websites devoted to saying that it didn't happen. Only the Jews. You don't find this with Cambodia or Armenia. And the depths of this absurdity serve to underline the fact that it is a spiritual attack against the Jew. Because you cannot link it to logic or decent arguments or to facts. It's because we are Jews, because we are in exile. That doesn't mean that we give up. It means that we need to be aware of it. And we need to know that this part of Golus is clearly predicted and delineated in the Torah. I mean, how much clearer can it be than the end of the curses in Kisavoy? You want to know what will happen to the Jews? Jews will try and sell themselves into slavery to save their lives. Vain 
Ukraine? The answer is no, we just want you dead. Can the Holocaust be seen any more clearly than that? We don't want you to become Christian. We don't want you to do slave labor. We want you gone, even if you're healthy. You're a Jew. And therefore, we need to understand we live a different existence. And it's important to be proud of it. We are the chosen nation. And things like the Holocaust deniers make it self-evident. And therefore, important to, to understand at this time of year. Perhaps one other associated idea from a little bit from left field is that all that is used to prove this, the converging evidence beyond reasonable doubt, is also used to prove that Torah was given by God on Mount Sinai to the Jewish people beyond reasonable doubt. It's admittedly a more sophisticated argument, but exactly the same approach. I have a 90-minute uh, a talk on this, which combines history and archaeology and logic to build the case. It's exactly, it's along exactly the same lines, and it comes to the same conclusion. So if you're into disproving Holocaust deniers, you should be into accepting or understanding that Torah was given on Mount Sinai.